The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines. U.S. stocks rebound with the Dow breaking a two-day losing streak, while Treasury yields spike after Fed Chair Jerome Powell confirms a rate hike is still on the table in March. I do think it will be appropriate to raise our target range for the federal funds rate at the March meeting in a couple of weeks, and I'm inclined to propose and support a 25 basis point rate hike. Crude prices rally to near-decade highs after OPEC Plus producers stick to a previously agreed gradual hike in output. That despite soaring prices. Meanwhile, Russia claims to have taken the first city of its Ukraine offensive, but Ukraine disputes that, and President Zelensky stands defiant. Wherever they go, they will be destroyed. They will not have calm here. They will not have food. They will not have one quiet moment. The occupiers will receive only one thing from Ukrainians, resistance. Fitch and Moody's downgrading Russian sovereign debt to junk, whilst MSCI and FTSE Russell excluding Russian indices and stocks from their indices, uh, saying the country's stock market is uninvestable. Plus, the UN General Assembly overwhelmingly voting to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine and calling on the Kremlin to withdraw its forces in a move that draws applause from ambassadors. So, very good morning, everybody. Let's focus on uh, Jay Powell's testimony then and the implications as far as uh, broader investment risk is concerned right now. The Federal Reserve Chairman uh, says he will back a 25 basis point rate hike at this month's Fed meeting and sees a series of quarter point increases over the year ahead. Speaking before a House committee, Powell said the spillover effects of the war in Ukraine remain uncertain forcing the Fed to, quote, remain nimble and proceed carefully. Powell also told lawmakers inflation is expected to decelerate over the course of the year, even with the labour market near full capacity. While addressing the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Powell said the Fed would monitor the impact on the global economy ahead of each meeting, but for now expected to proceed with its current guidance. So coming into this meeting, let's say before the Ukraine uh, uh, invasion, the committee was set to raise our policy rate, the first of what was to be a series of uh, raises expected for this year. Every meeting was live. Decisions would be based on incoming data and the evolving outlook. I also expected we'd make great progress on our plan to begin to shrink the balance sheet. And so the question now really is how the invasion of Ukraine, the ongoing war, the response from nations around the world, including sanctions, may have changed that expectation. And so uh, it's too soon to say for sure, but for now I would say that we will proceed carefully along the lines of, of that plan. However, Powell stressed that the war in Ukraine will have an upward impact on energy prices, potentially pushing inflation even higher and sapping consumer spending. 
The economic effects of these events are highly uncertain. So far, we've seen energy prices move up uh, further, and those increases will move through the economy and push up headline inflation, and also they're going to weigh on spending. We've, we're seeing effects on, on other commodities uh, and perhaps from declining risk sentiment and weak, weaker growth abroad. The thing is, we, we can't know how large or persistent those effects will be. That simply defends, depends on events to come. Well, the war in Ukraine has seen the market dial down expectations on the pace of the Fed's rate hiking cycle, with most investors now ruling out a 50 basis point hike in the near term. According to CME Group data, markets are now pricing in around five hikes for the year, up to 125 to 150 basis points in terms of where we end, ultimately, the terminal rate, Stephen. Welcome back, and thanks for the sterling work you did on the Polish-Ukraine border. Uh, very kind, Jeff, very kind. Um, let's just take a look at these markets now as well. And really, uh, as Jeff was saying, a pretty strong performance, actually, on the back of what Jay Powell had to say. I've been reading through the testimony, thinking about what he had to say, and quite frankly, it was a steady hand at the tiller. It was reassuring. It was basically saying, we don't know how this war is going to go, but we will do our best to calm the markets and do our best. And of course, despite the fact that oil is having an enormous rally to the upside the fact is there is nothing they can do about that kind of inflation at the moment they've got to worry about the longer term effects of what that will do to the economy i mean you'll recall on this show for the last few weeks we've been saying where is the tipping point for global demand on energy well i can tell you historically it's been as low as in the 70s certainly in the 80s in the 90s but in the 110 plus area era we are in the air, the kind of level which actually will diminish a vast amount of demand potentially and create potential economic problems further down the line historically it does that's just not my opinion it's just what it does historically so as jeff was saying we've uh, bucked a two-day losing streak on these markets what i will do is tell you where they are for the week because it's actually very interesting that despite all the enormous oscillations we're seeing in politics, uh, in the devastating events going on in Ukraine, uh, and of course in markets as well. The Dow for the week is down 0.51%, albeit only after three sessions. The S&P is flat on the week as well, and the Nasdaq is mildly in positive territory, up 0.4 of 1%. And I'll just remind you that we've got the Russell 2K and the Dow Transports solidly in correction territory, not quite uh, back into bear market territory. Okay, the 10-year yield has abated from that near 2% level, of course, that we saw uh, before the onset of uh, hostilities and the war in Ukraine. We're now to be fair, fairly steady at 186 at the moment is where we are currently trading uh, on the 10-year yield. Last Friday, it was 1.97. Right, let's have a look at this oil complex as well. We are seeing enormous Historic moves to the upside again, year to date. How old is this year? Nine weeks, 10 weeks? We're up uh, 50% year to date. I, I'm actually very interested in this OPEC story. I'm gonna to speak to Dan about this a little bit later on. He'll join us. I find it extraordinary that OPEC isn't putting more barrels onto the table, but of course OPEC has lost its relevance on its own, and that's why it went to OPEC+, Plus, which, quite frankly, is OPEC plus the Russians. You can forget about some of the other members out there. So very, very interesting to see what OPEC does here as well, both on a political front, where it's walking the tightrope as ever. Uh, bearing in mind, of course, there must be enormous pressure at the moment on the Saudis and other US allies in the Middle East, especially, to pump more barrels. It's not just in the oil complex that we're seeing uh, big rallies on commodities as well. Show, let me show you the softs market as well. Again, wheat, 
I, I've been talking to you for eight years about wheat in Ukraine as well. The, the soil there has a very special name. It's a very dark soil. It's a very um, uh, fertile soil as well. Uh, and, it, and it's a very important part of, of that uh, region, of that part of the world as well. 5.5% higher wheat. Again, huge moves we're seeing as of uh, recent uh, days and weeks. 1.7% higher soybeans. Corn up 2.5%. Okay, where are the Asian indices? A quick look at these for you as well. And again, pretty steady as she goes. The Shanghai Composite mildly in negative territory. That aside, we have solid but unspectacular gains across the board. The Nikkei, the best of the bunch, up 0.7 of 1%. US futures, what do they look like? Well, let's have a very quick look at these as well. We are seeing minor gains on back of that, uh, the big rally we saw yesterday. Right, let's get to Michael Yoshikami, CEO and founder of Destination Wealth Management. Uh, Michael, on days like this, it's very easy to ask you just very basic questions. For a start, what did you think Mr. Powell had to say uh, about his reassurance for markets? Uh, I thought it was as explicit as you possibly could be. He came out flat out and said that the expectation for half a point increase is now off the table. He was very specific about what the increase is going to look like. Um, so in a world that really is filled with uncertainty, uh, he was the one certain thing um, that really came out over the last two or three days where he said, this is specifically what we're going to do and we're going to adjust if we need to. So I thought it was reassuring. And I think that's why you're seeing the bond market trade as it is now with the 10-year Treasury well below 2%. Michael, I, I notice in your comments, and this is perhaps where you and I, and I agree with everything you said so far, but perhaps we might diverge a little bit here, that you agree that the Fed, with the Fed that inflation will begin to peak and moderate by year end. I, I think the Fed's been very, very wrong about inflation for a very long time. They ditched transitory after they'd been wrong for a good part of a year or so. What gives you the confidence about that inflationary picture, Michael? Well, first of all, let's just take off that I agree with the Fed, and I'll just tell you why I think that's going to be the case is I think eventually we're going to see now that the pandemic is easing around the world, we're going to see economies opening and we're going to see, in my view, slower economic growth at $110, $100 oil. Um, you mentioned the tipping point in your, um, your earlier comments. And I think really you have a situation right now where energy prices are going to rally so high that it really is going to have a global economic impact. And so I think you're really in a situation right now where maybe the economies don't get so overheated. You actually have the risk of potentially a global recession in the third and fourth quarter of this year if oil stays where it is right now. That's why I think you're going to see a moderation of inflation. Michael, if I can just bring up the semiconductor issue as well, because I just came back from Mobile World Congress and it feels as though many industry leaders don't believe that this is going to fix itself now this year. They were hopeful, of course, about the extra layer on top as we talk about energy prices and then any uh, disruption around Russia. They just do not think that that supply chain will get fixed in 2022. If you add that to the mix, we know how important semiconductors are to the technology sphere. What does that do in terms of the inflationary story and for business activity? Well, it certainly is a, a problem. And I think semiconductors are a, sp a special situation in that we just have as much capacity as we possibly can have right now. And we're not going to have more capacity coming in line for the next year or so. So it certainly is going to be a wild card. And so that is going to supply, uh, uh, that is going to constrain supply chains, which means in the United States, for example, car prices, which, which are a significant percentage of inflation, are going to continue to go through the roof. But with that being said, Karen, I, I still think that you're going to see the overall net effect 
as a slowdown in, uh, in the global economy if oil prices stay um, where they're at right now. Now, if OPEC comes out and says, we're going to do everything we can to get oil down to $75 a barrel, that's a whole nother situation. Now we have another demand issue and we have uh, constrained supplies. So I don't think you can take off the table that semiconductors are going to be an inflationary factor, but I think there's going to be other factors that are going to cause economic headwinds. Michael, if we circle back to the scenario that you're talking about, the pressure in the second half of this year, what does it mean for investors? Because if you think where we started out this year, they're looking at alternatives to the U.S. markets, potentially even European plays and elsewhere across in some of the Asian markets. Has that all changed now? The uh, investor community very much circling back to those reassuring messages from Powell and perhaps the reassuring nature of the U.S. market if they're placing bets at this stage. You might very seriously, um, you might very um, soon start to see that because um, we have the United States that's in a reasonably strong economic position. We still have challenges in China, obviously, with what's happening with their economy and what's happening in Hong Kong. I'm sure you see Hong Kong is about to go into uh, a two-week shutdown uh, because of what's happening with COVID and the Omicron variant. Uh, and of course, obviously, the challenges that Europe will face because of what's happening in Ukraine. So I think you are going to see a circling back to those boring, reassuring names. And yeah, I keep saying it, dividend-oriented names that are good cash flow names, strong blue chip names. I think that's where investors are going to gravitate towards, particularly if we start to see a slowdown later on this year. And yet, Michael, um, Goldman Sachs had an interesting piece out a couple of days ago when they were pointing out in their mutual fund survey that Managers were returning back to some of the growth favorites because they saw an opportunity to buy them at lower prices. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a sort of weeding out going on, as we know, in the growth segment. Those companies that can demonstrate they have real profits seem to be doing a whole lot better here, whilst those who were those uh, shoot for the skies, um, great idea, but show us the money kind of stocks not doing so well here. Do you think there's some value in still chasing some of those strong growth stories at this stage, given what you've said about the rotation? Yeah, so so the strong growth stories, let's call it what it is, mostly tech names. Um, you have a number of tech names that are down 20, 30 percent from their high. Um, they're experiencing softness right now. That's a much different story than some of these uh, SPAC names that are out there that have no revenue and you don't even know how they in intend at any point uh, to make a profit. It's really just a stab in the dark. So I think you're going to continue to see this division in growth versus speculative growth. I think speculative growth, and you see this right now, is just absolutely getting crushed. Um, I think you're going to see growth at more of a reasonable price, not really Garpy sort of name, but growth at a more discounted name at a discounted basis, I think there's going to be some appeal for investors because you're buying things at 20, 30% down from where they were just three, four, five months ago. And let me just ask you about energy because, again, um, there are shades of grey in this story and it's become a little bit more complicated. S&P put out a piece of analysis yesterday saying short bets against energy stocks are at the highest level since 2020. But when you look at the five largest energy companies in the S&P, they have below average short interest in them. So this seems to be very much focused at even some of the EV energy businesses or some of those um, smaller shale companies. Um, how do you trade energy at the moment and make sure you make the best of the headline oil price? Well, listen, if you're, if you're buying EV, if you're buying... Uh 
uh, some of these more speculative names that you're really banking, whether it's even if you're buying a, a, a car makers that are autonomous driving or electric vehicles, um, you got to be very, very, very careful. I think in, in energy, you have to ask yourself, what's the long play here? On a short-term basis, I suppose there's some profit in energy. Um, if oil goes to 125, what are energy companies going to look like? They're going to look pretty profitable. But this thing in Ukraine is going to end. I know it doesn't feel that way. We're in the middle of it right now. And when it does, you're going to see energy prices start to settle back down um, whether or not there's short interest against these names as well, we're short interest in these names. And remember, this really is an industry that is going to continually be under longer term pressure because of alternative energy. So I think you got to be pretty cautious in buying energy right now. If you're buying it, um, particularly in more established energy names, you want to be careful. And if you're buying it, you want to make sure you're buying it also for the dividend because many of these names pay pretty high dividends. A pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us once again. Michael Yoshikami, the CEO and founder of Destination Wealth Management. Uh, just on a programming note, we're going to have a, a lot more reaction, of course, to Jay Powell's testimony. We're going to look forward to the second round today where Powell speaks in the Senate. Our colleagues stateside will be speaking exclusively to Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester. Don't miss that interview at 16.05 CET. Right. OPEC and its allies, uh, of course, the most important being Russia, have agreed to stick to plans for a modest rise in output in April. The decision came despite Russia's invasion of Ukraine and in defiance of calls from the US and other major consumers for more supplies as crude prices rocketed during one of the shortest meetings on record, around 10 minutes long. Uh, petroleum producers agreed to increase oil production by 400,000 barrels per day in April. And according to Reuters, there was no mention of Ukraine. Uh, Dan, I don't expect um, necessarily a morality play from OPEC. I, I've, I've long uh, forgotten about that kind of idea. But the truth of the matter is, they know that at these kind of prices, historically, there is an economic downtick thereafter. There is a demand problem thereafter. Why are they not acting in their own interests and putting more production out there so they can help try and avert some form of economic recession? You are correct, Stephen. That's why this meeting result came as somewhat of a surprise, particularly as we see Brent and WTI now pushing past $110 a barrel. The fact of the matter is OPEC did nothing overnight. This meeting ended in 13 minutes, so a record there in terms of duration. And oil production is going to increase by about 400,000 barrels per day in April, at least on paper. That is what they've been doing since last July. Now, of course, the question is exactly how much oil is going to reach the market. Market. We still don't know. But in terms of what happens next, well, the group didn't hold a news conference either. In a statement with regards to how they're viewing this current situation engulfing Russia and Ukraine, they say this current volatility is not caused by changes in the market fundamentals, they say, but by current geopolitical developments. Steve, you also get the sense that this meeting was perhaps over before it began because we also saw the Russian President Vladimir Putin and the UAE's de facto leader Mohammed bin Zayed speaking on the phone earlier this week to firm up this agreement. Of course, the UAE abstained from that UN vote to condemn Russia's invasion. At the same time, as you know very well, Steve, the UAE and Saudi Arabia also share very close oil and investment ties. So it will be interesting to see for exactly how long this remains the status quo. At the same time, what we've seen this week is significant volatility and upside in pricing. And of course, 
The question of how much leverage the United States and the White House actually has now to affect change here is also up for review. Of course, we saw uh, the US, Germany, France, the UK, uh, Japan, Canada, all agreeing to release 60 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and reserves. That's a drop in the ocean. It did little to cool off hot prices. And the question is, what are we going to see next there as well? Of course, the US hasn't ruled out sanctions on Russian energy. Today, it also moved to uh, mandate some export controls, but it would probably prefer to uh, protect European supply and offer some kind of a shield against a possible price uh, shock beyond what we've already seen, at least for now, Karen, because of course, uh, higher oil is also highly inflationary, uh, which could dent the growth outlook for a lot of these economies too, as Steve was alluding to. Back over to you. Dan, thank you very much for fleshing that up for us. And I think it just brings us back to what to do around oil positioning at this point as some investors may be tempted to put more into the portfolio as an inflation hedge. But worth noting that even while oil prices are surging to their highest level in around a decade, short sellers are increasing their bets against energy stocks to the highest level in more than a year. According to the latest data from S&P Global Market Intelligence, short interest in energy stocks traded on a major U.S. exchanges was at 3.49% in mid-February prior to the Ukrainian invasion, up nearly 50 basis points from the end of November and the highest level since December 2020. The report goes on to say that while short seller interest in the largest five energy stocks stood below the S&P 500 average of 2.18%, the most heavily shorted energy stock as of mid-February was Blink Charging, an EV company with a short interest of 36.2%. And on a quick programming note, we're going to hear more about the energy sector in the next hour of the show when the Fordham CEO, Marcus Raramo, will join us. That is a first on CNBC interview at 815 CET. And also later on today, U.S. colleagues will be speaking to ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods following the American oil giant's decision to exit the Russian market. It's been a fascinating conversation for a lot of ESG watchers. Uh, this is a company that hasn't had the highest rating on its ESG credentials in recent years, but it has fallen into line behind BP and Shell this week around Russia. So don't miss that interview at 1630 CET. Well, coming up on the show, slowing services, uh, Chinese PMI shows the most sluggish activity in six months. So we're going to dig into those numbers next. Stay with us. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. The U.S. House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol last year says it has evidence former President Donald Trump broke multiple laws trying to stop Congress from certifying President Biden's election victory. Trump has not commented on those findings. 
China's services sector expanded at its lowest rate in six months in February. That's according to the private Kaishan services PMI reading, which dropped to 50.2 from 51.4 in January. Our colleague Sam Vardas filed this report. Companies in China's services sector continue to feel the pinch from Beijing's zero-COVID strategy. That's what a private survey of business activity revealed today. The Taishin PMI falling to 50.2 last month from 51.4 in January. Now, that's still above the line, which separates expansion from contraction, but was the slowest rate of expansion in six months. Now, this is in contrast with the official PMI numbers out earlier in the week, which showed services activity accelerating last month. The Taishin survey, of course, looks at the smaller and private firms in China, which are more sensitive to lockdowns than the bigger and state-owned firms. Of course, it's not good for businesses like bars and restaurants. And so what this showed was new business fell for the first time since August as containment measures continued to bite. New export business also fell for a second month as the pandemic weighed, and that all led to companies shedding jobs again, although the rate of that eased in perhaps another good sign inflationary pressures cooled slightly although still grew for a 20th month economists say policymakers should step up support to help the labor market and smes with cost pressures and so all eyes are now on china's annual meeting of parliament the two sessions kicking off tomorrow where policymakers are likely to announce further steps to shore up growth Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.